Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to episode 71 of the podcast. Today, I have the absolute joy to talk with Rabbi Robbie Tomboski and his wife, author Hava Florin, sharing inspiring touch points from her book, Everything's Going to Be Okay, and discussing many teachings at length surrounding Judaic wisdom and the Talmud in service to our path here on earth. So whether you are a Jewish person of faith or not, but you're interested in the universal wisdom teachings and how they can really benefit your life journey, well, then this is the episode for you. It is rich with discovery. And as Rabbi Robbie, for nearly three decades being a rabbi, we cover many aspects of these teachings, such as the gift of accountability, the nature of heaven, having a personal sense of consequence and what that means, the seven tenets of the Talmudic sages, the immeasurable importance of the mastery and refinement of your own moral character, and the grace, the grace of crisis, and so much more. At the top of the show, they share the many opportunities that shaped their lives when Rabbi Robbie suffered a life-threatening condition fairly recently and was told he had at best 48 hours to live. There are a lot of gems to listen to here, and as always, I really hope you enjoy it and pass it on to someone else who could use it in their life. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show. It takes a second, and if you really want to show some love, feel free to donate at my page, alchemyofmastery.com forward slash podcast. You can scroll down to support the mission and you'll be supporting the show and my podcast staff. All patrons and subscribers, you should know, are entered into special sweeps for huge discounts on future programs and a lot of great offerings that are coming down the pike. So that's my way of thanking you for your love and your listenership. And if you ever want to reach out to me and let me know how this podcast is helping you in your life, I would love to hear it. So send me a note, let me know how it's going in your life, and I thank you. Okay, so let's get to it. That's it for me here, and enjoy the show. Hava, your beautiful book. As I opened the first page, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite quotes when you speak as an analogy on your kitchen stained glass window. And it made me think, of course, of that very famous quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I'll just quote that here. People are like stained glass windows. They sparkle and shine when the sun is out. But when the darkness sets in, their true beauty is revealed only if there is a light from within. And again, as I opened your first page of your book, you refer to your stained glass window in your kitchen and how amongst the brutality, as you say, in chaos, these sort of broken moments of our lives, life and its determination will always seek to reset, which I thought was so beautiful and worthy of mention. And I, as I see it, life is always seeking regeneration if we allow it, that we are as spiritual beings having a human experience um, through the, all these complexities of life and trials and tribulations we are actually creating greater greater fractals of light and levels in our consciousness. So with all that, my question to begin is really, what would you say to someone who has lost their determination to reset? I think that it always starts with discovering wonder, 
wonder in something, whether it be, you know, I interviewed Peter Himmelman. We talked about this a lot. He's an incredible musician, an author, a speaker. And as creatives, and because I wear so many hats as a filmmaker, an actress, a musician, a singer, a healer, I understand that when you're in a really dark place, one of the places to go to get out of that darkness is to find something that makes you go, wow, that's, that's amazing. And it could be as simple as being with a baby and just watching the beauty of this innocence, the innocent laugh of a child. It could be as small or as exciting as, you know, kissing the person that you're in love with. And it mm -hmm. could be as grand as watching an incredible concert or traveling to a place you've never been or watching the sunset. And I think that when you're in that dark place, it feels small and congested. And the only way out of that is to experience something that brings a sense of awe where there's abundance, expanse, greatness. And we get those moments every day. The question is, are we paying attention to them? Right. And when we start to pay attention to the synchronicities of life, I think that's when we can kind of have those real aha, like, whoa, that was something that I wasn't expecting. Um, I try, and my husband can speak to this also, because he and I have this game that we play. I mean, I think this is more his, <laughs> his game that I've taken on. Um, and I write about this in the book that he has this game. What's the game, honey, about when you show up somewhere? You mean the scavenger hunt? The scavenger hunt. Mm. Ooh, what's what the is scavenger it? hunt? Yeah. Well, you know, in my work and in my career, I uh, find myself in lots of new places quite often, uh, lots of cities, lots of airports, and we always have a plan. And you should have a plan. Plans are very important. And then recognizing that nothing goes to plan, and uh, the only constant is going to be the uh, the change in that plan. <laughs> and so some time ago, I decided that there were two agendas playing out at all times. There was my agenda, which was important. But then there was the agenda of the universe, God, our higher power. And that was simultaneously being played out at the same time. So instead of getting hyper-focused and uh, too committed to my plan, while I was enacting my plan, I would keep my eyes opened for the scavenger hunt which is what is the universe putting in front of me in this moment right now today that I need to be able to engage with. And for me, it always begins with people. So the best things in life always begin with one simple word, and that is hello. Mm -hmm. And so my family, my kids, people who are with me will quickly either come to love or get deeply annoyed by the fact that I have an incessant need to meet everybody around me. Let me just say, when we go to the gas station, how long it takes for us to fill up gas. <laughs> I'll give you just a, a quick anecdote about that is that last night I was flying back from New York um, on, a, on a trip that we were meeting, doing some impact work there with some really great organizations. And my flight got delayed on the tarmac for several hours. And as I was sitting there, I started thinking to myself, what's the scavenger hunt? What am I looking for? The woman behind me taps me on my shoulder. And she's with her two daughters. And she says, are you Rabbi Robbie? And I was like, yes. And you are, she goes, you may not remember me, but we met 12 years ago. My husband was a police officer who was killed in the line of fire. And um, we were introduced to a philanthropist who was specifically helping out people who were in our situation. And you and your wife were there at dinner. And we spent three hours together in this man's dining room. And I'll never forget the influence that your wife and yourself had on my life. And these are my daughters, and they are now in college. Um, and this wonderful, um, beautiful family, um, not Jewish, not people that we are, we see our ministry as a rabbi and as a rebbitzin, as an author, as our impact work, as that to the world. And here was the scavenger hunt that the universe made evident for me and obvious 
that I got all this extra time to catch up with these folks on the plane. That's so beautiful. And how just divinely placed that was. No mistakes. Yeah, there's no mistakes. And this happens to us all the time, all the time. Um, I have a dozen of these stories. And one of the stories that I talk about actually in my book was when Robbie was, uh, some of the story of, of the book is us going through one of the most difficult times of our lives when we were in Las Vegas for our niece's wedding. And my husband was diagnosed with uh, sepsis out of nowhere, 105 fever, a massive heart attack, uh, followed by a severe heart infection. Um, he had 48 hours to get treatment. We were already in like the 29th hour. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was, it was scary. It was bleak. Um, thank God he made it out alive, <laughs> stronger than ever. Uh, but I remember when we, when I brought him, you know, the worst place in the world to be on a post COVID vacation, this was 2021, June of 2021 was, um, a hospital off the strip. You mm. don't want to be there at oh. all. <laughs> Definitely don't want to be there post COVID when half of the staff has been disposed. Oof. So we're in an ER with a hundred other patients. Half of them are, you know, blitzed out of their minds. Yeah. Yeah out of their minds. Exactly. And, um, the, this lovely doctor, uh, took one look at us and he said, this is going to be a long night. I can't promise that we're going to get you in quickly, but we're going to do our best. And I just looked at him and I'm like, you know, we have no time. Mm. And he said, rabbi, don't worry. I got this. And the following day, he needed to have a procedure that was very dangerous for the situation that we were in. And I wound up um, deciding to do three things in that moment. I decided to uh, ask for help and ask our community to pray for us. I decided to write a letter of gratitude to the one person who I knew helped Robbie get the help he needed, which was this one doctor. And uh, the third thing I did was I, I just wanted to pray and meditate for myself as well. So when I went, I, I went downstairs to the gift shop and I bought a card and I gave it to this doctor. And I thought to myself, I don't know why we're here, but there is a reason and people we have to connect with. And I still don't know what it is, but I just know that every person that we come in contact with, for some reason, there's going to be something that needs to happen. So I wrote this sweet letter to him just saying, thank you so much for making us priority. You saved my husband's life. And um, I went into the ER that was just as maddening as it was, you know, 36 hours prior. And uh, I said, uh, doctor, I, I really want to give you this card. And I want to say thank you for being there for me. And this tough exterior, exterior macho guy starts welling up mm. and crying. And he says, I don't think you understand how much I need a rabbi right now in my life. Wow. This means to me, you're catching me at a particular time in my life. And I just said, well, you got one for life now. So yeah. whatever oh, you need. So beautiful. You know, it's like you were saying, these things happen to you a lot in life. And I would, you know, offer, and I imagine people listening would probably agree to some degree, depending on their in you know openness and, and awareness of it that it's happening all the time every day every moment to everyone it's just in proportion to your um the power of your presence the power of your awareness the power of you paying attention and really listening perceiving spiritually going beyond just the the appearances yeah i think exactly the answer to the question you posed at the beginning which was, if you're not finding the beauty in the fractured light, where is it? And uh, the answer, which we're coming to, is that it's there. And if you can't find it, you may be overcommitted to your own agenda. Mm. Maybe it's to suspend that and have a little scavenger hunt and say, who do I have to have gratitude for? Who do I have to reach out to? Who do I have to turn around and see who's sitting in the seat behind me? Because that beauty is there. That moment is there. And as you just said so eloquently, it's that awareness and that presence to be able to say there's another agenda going on here. Yeah, right. 
you know, as I'm reading that story about um, you, Rabbi Rabbi, and Hava, through your through your lens, Hava, your words about him going into sepsis, it made me think of, I, I had an experience many, many years ago. This was like two decades ago. I had a lot of knee surgery. I was a gymnast and I had a really bad, um, really bad injury uh, when I was 15. I blew my knee out and I had multiple knee surgeries and I ended up having to have my ACL done again for the third time when I was like 31. And I ended up getting infected. And it was so bad that, you know, the doctor would call me and it'd be like the middle of the night. And he'd say, I, we're going in the wrong direction here. How are you doing? I said, I'm all right. And he's like, yeah, we're going in the wrong direction. I'm going to have to see you again tomorrow. And I should, I should back up and say, by just pure providence, when we say there's something greater happening, I can't help but include this part of the story where after I had that knee surgery done again for the third time, I was walking, I was on crutches, it was about a week later, you know, they kind of usher you out faster these days out of, out of surgeries. And I was on my crutches to um, rehab, which happened to be next to his surgical unit. And we just happened to cross paths in the hallway, just happened to. And uh, he said, hey, how's it going? I said, I'm okay. And he goes, you don't look so good. And I go, you know, I don't feel so good. And he said, come here. And he takes me into a back room, pulls out this big sort of like aspirating needle and sticks it in my knee and pulls out all this pus. And he said, we got to go to surgery right now. When did you have lunch? And I said, oh, I just ate. And he throws his clipboard down. He goes, shit. And I said, is everything okay? He goes, I've never had a um, amputee and I'm not going to have one today. Go to the hospital to prep. I'll see you in a few hours. Long and short of it is I ended up having to kind of get cleaned out a few times and I was having some reaction and he didn't tell me, which I found fascinating because years later, as my knee just was bothering me from time to time, I'd go see an ortho who knew this doctor and he said, wow, this guy is such a good man. He saved your life. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you had sepsis, my dear. And I said, no one told me. And I was in St. John's Hospital for a month for the third time they opened me up. And I remember feeling kind of like I was on the edge of death, but nobody said anything to me. I didn't know I was that kind of close to the other side. But I remember being in bed in the hospital and seeing this person, I'll just say, standing at the foot of my bed that had to be like seven feet tall. I don't know if it was, a. am sure it was a spirit or a guide, or maybe it was my father who passed on. Who knows? Maybe it was a saint, a savior. I don't know. It could have just been, I, I, I really don't know who it was, but I know it wasn't of this dimension. And I said to my boyfriend at the time, who's the person standing at the foot of my bed? And he said, nobody's standing at the foot of your bed. And I said, oh, well, somebody's standing at the foot of my bed. Who is that? They've been here for hours. I said, nobody's standing at the foot of your bed. This is a long story, but what I'm getting at, and it's really leading to a question I have for you, uh, Rabbi, which is when we're sick and we're at that edge of being kind of in between worlds. And I think of many near-death experiencers that I've talked to that they 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 come back with a greater sense of purpose or they come back with these gifts that they didn't have before or what have you did you feel that you came back from this experience of really kind of being on the edge of death with a greater sense of purpose or an urgency in your sort of soul incompletions great question i um have had the blessing a feeling an urgency about life for a, quite some time. My, my dad was diagnosed with cancer at a young age and um, wound up being sick for many years and then passing. And so not in a macabre way, but in sort of a, a meaningful way, I, I came to the realization that time may be very, very limited and that we really wanted to use our time in the most meaningful way possible. And that meant oftentimes turning down things that were very lucrative, that weren't really things we wanted to do. 
And my wife and I decided we were going to dedicate our lives to really being of service and being of service in a way that was authentic as we could be as human beings and uh, in ways that elevated um, everything that we were lucky enough to have the universe, God, uh, providence put in our, 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 you know, our vicinity. But at the moment of uh, thinking I had 48 hours left to live, and that's pretty much what they told me, mm. I will say that the clarity was tremendous, different than anything I could have imagined in thinking that life was limited. And at that moment, uh, what really uh, struck me was one, that life had already surpassed my greatest expectations. Wow. How yeah. so? Um, I'm married to my wife for 28 <laughs> years. So go ahead, I'm interrupt you. He's married I'll, to I'll me. Let him say. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, being married uh, to my wife, who really is my soulmate for the last 28 years, was something I couldn't have imagined as a younger person or how that would be. Um, our children um, and the uh, and, and part of my wife's family that we were blessed to raise in an unusual situation. So we had this sort of like very um, unorthodox family in certain ways. The experience- well, orthodox, but unconventional. Oh, orthodox, but unconventional. I stand corrected. Um, <laughs> then as well as um, being able to not only serve as a rabbi, but to be able to serve the world in a way where I could bring some of the values that we carry deeply and the, the teachings of what we hold, but taking it out of a religious aspect, bringing it into a values-based um, impact focus and been blessed to work with celebrities, athletes, companies in um, a very uh, unique position to help them find impact and uh, elevate the world around them. So that was the first thing I felt. I felt tremendous gratitude. And that sounds bizarre um, when you're looking death in the eye, but that's the first thing I felt. And then I felt tremendous sadness. And the sadness I felt was not being able to um, be there for my kids, not being able to be a guide to them, not being able to help them um, in their lives, not to be able to say things that maybe I hadn't said until that point in time. Did you have, I guess, the energy, the gumption, the ableness to reach for a particular teaching or prayer to keep you anchored in the living or to keep you moving forward, hopeful? You know, my favorite prayer is a prayer that we say every morning upon waking. It's a prayer that um, we say before we put our feet on the ground and before we um, get out of bed. And it's basically a prayer of thanks. And the prayer says, um, thank you. Uh, thank you, God. Thank you to the, uh, our creator for um, returning my soul to me. How great is your trust in me? And it's a really interesting prayer because we don't proclaim our trust in our creator. We proclaim our creator's trust in us. And the context for me of that prayer is that life is temporary. Well, that's not true. Life is everlasting. As you had said earlier, our spiritual beings having a physical experience is temporary. Human experience, yeah. Human experience, right? That's temporary being on this world. When that's done, we're going to give our souls back, and it's all of us. And nobody gets to not have that experience. Every night when we go to sleep, there is this sense of uh, temporary slight death, right? Because we're sleeping, we're not aware. And we wake up, we consider ourselves reborn. And before we go into the day, we say nothing is by happenstance. Everything is by destiny. Whatever happens today, whether it's wonderful, joyful, painful, challenging, difficult, hurtful, that wasn't an accident, that was brought to me by my creator. And he, she has faith in me that I'm enough to handle that. It's designed for me. That prayer helped me because on one side, I accepted to whatever would be, would be. And if it was my time, it was my time. And I was grateful. And on the other side, I knew I had the capacity to fight. I knew I had the capacity to get better. And if that was the will of God, I was going to fight with all of my power to have mm. the, live up to the faith that 
God has in me to um, make this experience truly a positive one again to something that I could I could live into and live through. And that really removed a lot of the fear. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, I, I you know, I was recently uh, at a family's house. Their father had passed away and uh, it was an old family friend. And the, the daughter of the, the, the man who had died said to me, what, I can't believe what you guys have just been through. You know, did you feel like kind of the same question you asked, like, did it change your perspective at all? Yeah. And um, for me, the answer was no, because we've always had the perspective of living every life. Like it could be our last day of grabbing the joy and as much, you know, um, just inspiration from every day as we could. I mean, we learned that lesson at a very, very young age. Um, for me personally, uh, I had a near-death experience when I was 17 and then again at 30. Um, uh, no, 17, 20, and then again at 30. So I learned at a from very young age that life is fleeting. So I think when Robbie and I met, it was one of the things that we talked about actually on our dates was, you know, living life with purpose, with meaning, with conviction, um, almost almost to a ridiculous degree. I think we've made some decisions that were just uh, a little too altruistic. Uh, and we had to learn how to be a little bit more, uh, you know, self-serving and not so, um, you know, unself. It was, it was you, you can't be codependent about it either, you know? <laughs> I think of something from my schooling as a minister and our motto is really um, these are come from the teachings of Jesus, but I mean, of course they apply to everybody and it's uh, love yourself first so that you can love others. Well, take care of yourself first so that you can take care of others. Well, and don't hurt yourself and don't hurt others. And it's like, wow, what kind of a world would it be if everybody did that? It'd be quite different. So simple in theory, but yet who do we know that does that? We're so conditioned to think it's selfish and the sort of negative connotation to really love thyself first so that you can come to the plate of life fully fed and nourished. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great sage by the name of Rabbi Akiva and he had a saying, that you should love your fellow man as you love yourself. Mm. What he's basically saying is take care of yourself. Right. And if you love yourself, if you truly love yourself and you're able to value yourself, then you can value another person. It goes hand in hand. Rabbi Robbie, what does the Torah or the Talmud say? Is there anything referencing self-worth as a sort of disease of consciousness, or I should say lack of self-worth, lack of loving thyself, separation from the truth of who you are, seeing through an ego-centered lens, limited identity? Yeah, I think very much so. Um says in the uh, in the uh, Rambam in, in the uh, Halacha, which is the, the codification of Jewish law, that one must see the entire world as if it is an equilibrium on, if you would imagine, a scale with the two sides of the scale. And you are the tipping point. So whatever mm -hmm. you bring to the world will either tip it to good or tip it to evil in any given moment. And that is a perspective that we should have in our lives. And honestly, that concept of personal worth also means that what we do matters. And if what I do matters, it can matter for the good or the bad. And so the choices I make have tremendous value. So along with personal self-worth, we have to also include personal sense of consequence in our lives. And we're never a victim to anything in our life. At any given time, God has given us the capacity and the ability and the um, perception and the awareness to be able to make good decisions in our lives. Now, look, we're human. 
We have foibles. We're going to make mistakes all the time. The goal is to continue to learn from those mistakes and be able to rise and to continue to grow from that, be an example to ourselves, our families, our communities in the world and each person's life. But that said, I think the lesson from that is really, really clear that everybody has intrinsic value, that there is no such thing as a person that doesn't have deep worth in the eyes of God, and that there's always personal redemption as well. Mm, Beautiful. What to you is the most difficult commandment or teachings in the Torah for you first, and also maybe in what you've seen collectively in Jewish people of faith? Mm, wow, that's a great question. Well, you know, in, uh, in <laughs> that's a big one. It's a big one. It's so, you know, in, in Judaism, there are 613 commandments. Wow. So there's, yeah, 248 of those are do not do's, and there are 365 to do's. And there's no aspect of our life from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to sleep at night that isn't uh, in somehow in contact with our higher power, with a commandment of some sort of how it's included. That may include the way we bless our food, the way we eat, um, all the way down to how we interact in our business and things of that nature. There is no separation between any aspect of life. So I think this is probably true in general and spiritual pursuit, but in Judaism, there is no, I'm no longer in the synagogue, or this is me in the world, and this is me when I'm praying. We don't believe in role success or roles at all. There has to be complete integration of the self. And when that happens, it's about our religion, our spirituality, influencing everything around us. But I was just having this conversation with somebody this week, and um, I had said, they said to me, you're a rabbi, and you've just done this presentation here at this, at this corporate office, and you're talking about this impact thing. And they said, how does your, how does your rabbiship or your being a, a, a spiritual person or a spiritual leader, how does that influence your, um, your work in the world? And so in the moment, I had said, you know, uh, Stephanie, that was her name it's really my anchor. Mm. It kind of anchors me. And she laughed and she said, I don't think you should call it your anchor. She <laughs> goes, I think it's the wind in your sail. Ah, okay. And yeah. I thought about it. And I said, you know what? You're a hundred percent right. So I think the hardest thing isn't a specific commandment. I think for anybody and people in my congregation and myself as well, it's being able to take the values and the practice of religion and spirituality and see it as something which is not siloed to religious behavior in your life, but it's something that has to, over time, become ubiquitous in every aspect of your life. And maybe my my faux pas or my verbiage that I said this week when I was talking to this woman, Stephanie, was indicative of that lifelong journey for me, even as a 30-year rabbi, because my religion is not an anchor, although I meant it was tethering me, but it really needs to be the wind in my sails, which means that it pushes me forward. I think in Chava's book, I think she does such a great job. And so many people who are not Jewish, who wouldn't necessarily read that from our congregation, have take the lessons and the way she's framed it and the experiences. And it really does lend itself to anyone's life where they're trying to figure out how do they take their values and their experiences, and maybe their religion as well. And how do they use that through the uh, eye of someone that's been through it, who's guided a lot of people, as my wife has, and to use that as a frame to um, truly have everything we experience be that wind in our sail. Yeah, I, I see that as the essential value of all religions, that at the essence, it's at the essence, it's loving. At the essence, it's to bring us together. At the essence is to see God in everything and everyone. And if there's separation where it's like, I'm better than you because then you've lost it. Then you're just in your false identity and the ego just applauds you. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what, 
I think that's what, like, if you're asking, you know, what's the hardest thing of all of the, you know, it's not so much, it's not, it's not so much that there's one law that's the hardest one to keep. It's more like, I think the most difficult thing for any human being, and I don't care what religion you're part of, is integration. Right. The integration of your spirituality into your physical experience. That is the job of being human. And that is exhausting to many and difficult, confusing. And most of the time we're not getting it right. Let's be honest. And the times that we are getting it right, that's when we can call ourselves holy because holiness, the word holy or kedusha, kadosh um, is the Hebrew word actually means integration. Like Mm. the, the idea is that you're able to have a singular united moment of godliness and physicalness coming together in this perfect collaboration and harmonious moment. And that is why like during COVID, and I talk about this in the book, that during COVID, when seven o'clock PM was struck and in New York city, the entire city started clapping for all of the nurses and the doctors who were going through the most difficult time, it was such a holy experience because there was a collective, there was a collective consciousness that was fused with a sense of gratitude, love. And that is, that is holiness. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of really the presence on, on this planet and humanity of the heart coherence, like the heart is so much more powerful and sending more signals, information to the brain than the brain is to the heart. And if we want to transform our lives, it's like we can't think our way to God. We have to feel our way to God. We have to open in our heart. It's it's really about, uh, I think what I mentioned, I may have talked about this in your podcast, Hava. It makes me think of, it's very easy to say, I love you, but it's very different to be the loving in action. And so doing it gets it done. And I think of a wonderful quote that you referenced in your book by Rabbi Pinson, if I am pronouncing his name correctly. And and it's a beautiful quote. And he says, when the ego collapses under a distressing experience, it's resistance to transcendence or it's resistance to transcendent power is removed. And that's so true. Because that's just the the demonstration of the gift, the gift of surrender, the gift of of just having to be forced, for lack of a better word, into surrender. It's like, no, no, we're trying, spirit's trying to, God's trying to get you into surrender so that you can perceive from a higher plane, the highest altitude possible. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I have some I have so many questions. I I have another question for you, Hava. We shall continue, shall we? We have all night, do we not? We have all night, yeah, why not? Shabbat, (laughs) it's the middle of the week. It's funny, just Uh, as you're about to ask a question, I noticed the clock says 613, equivalent to the 613 commandments Robbie just was talking about. Whoa, hello. My husband's Jewish, and uh, to this day, we were just talking about this the other day, and he said, I don't know. It's not really clear what the afterlife is. And this is kind of a two-part question. One, I I kind of want to break up this question and, and, and go back. First, I'd love to ask you, uh, Rabbi, what is the afterlife according to the Jewish teachings? Is there a heaven? What is What, what happens when we die? Sure. It's a question I get quite often about yeah. the Jewish view on life after death. And lately, I tend to frame it a little differently. And I tend to ask them if they've given any consideration to life before birth. Okay. And the reason I do that is because there's a wonderful short story that was written by a 14th century priest Name is evading me at the moment. And it's a story about a brother and a sister who are roommates. Actually, they're womb mates because they are in vitro. And they uh, are, it's obviously a fictional short story. And he's writing that the, uh, the, the daughter 
says to her brother, sister says to her brother, um, can I ask you a question? I have this thought and it's a little out there. And he goes, sure, what's going on? And she says, do you believe that there may be such a thing as life after birth? And he says, what could that be life after birth? She goes, I don't know, but I don't think this womb is everything. I think that once we finish being here in the womb, there's actually an entire new world that we enter into at birth. And he says, are you crazy? Have you ever met anybody that's come back from life after birth? Have you ever seen anybody? Have you ever talked to anybody? Have you communicated with anybody on the other side? And she goes, no, no, but I just, I believe it. He goes, well, how would we live? We're connected to this tube that goes into our stomachs. It's how we eat. We have this amniotic fluid all around us. It's how we breathe. It's insanity. It's crazy. There's nothing in my experience that would ever allow me to even conceive that that's possible. And he ends the conversation. <laughs> the next day, she says, there's actually more. Goes, oh, my, what? What more? He goes, well, I believe there may be something called the mother. And he goes, the mother? What's the mother? And she says, well, I think the mother is what's connected on the other end of this tube. And I think that's what feeds us. And I think she surrounds us and is all around us, even though we can't see her. Mm. And sometimes late at night when you're sleeping, I think I can hear her singing to us. Aww. So I think that story, and I often use that story when I'm talking to children who have experienced grief. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we take out the uh, deep intellectual um, aspect of trying to understand something beyond our grasp, and we use a story, we kind of pass that judgment part of our brain that shuts down when things are beyond our understanding. Mm-hmm. And we instinctually, intuitively say, of course, conception without birth would be ridiculous. If that's the case, then life that ends with death would be just as ridiculous as conception without birth. So as you had said so eloquently, you know, we're spiritual beings that are on a human experience or physical experience, as I like to say. So too, we were here, you, your personality. So Judaism believes the soul was created when Adam was created, all souls were created and they were living in heaven and they have an existence. And the Talmud explains that they have a personality and they have a name. They have a proclivity. And the soul has a life. And then the soul is chosen for a specific mission in this world that matches with the family and the mother and father, the influences that God is going to put in that child's life. And then the child is born into this world. And that child then has the opportunity to have a human experience, a physical experience to, for the benefit of that soul. And then when that soul leaves this world, the belief is it goes back to where it was prior, but that's not the end. And we may call that heaven, if you will. But the ultimate goal is that at some point in time, the world will reach a place where we believe in the Jewish concept of Messiah, which we call the Mashiach, the Messianic era. And at that time, all souls will once again come down into physical beings and be alive on this world again. And so heaven isn't the reward. Heaven is the place we started. Heaven is where we go to um, continue the life we had before we were living and on the way to the next place where we'll wind up which will be everlasting life in this world at some time in the future. Beautiful. From my research, according to the Talmudic sages, there are seven, uh, I guess, top messages considered to be the most important messages for life, for a life well-lived. And, and Rabbi, I'd love for you to comment on these and see if this is true, first and foremost, and, and, and what you have to say about this, because I think they're really great tenants. One is, have you been honest in business? Two, did you make time for a spiritual life? Three, did you get going with procreating? Um, four, did you keep hope? 
Five, did you seek wisdom and discernment, discernment from what is true versus what is illusion or false? And were you honest? And also, have you been true to yourself? These are considered to be the questions that you will potentially be asked by the tribunal of heaven. <laughs> yes. What say you, Rabbi Robbie, on all of that? So that is uh, ac accurate. Okay. Written down, so you have quoted well. Oh, good. Um, yes. And the Talmud is a unique tapestry of Judaism. It is a uh, written in a way where it is part law, part lore, part story, you know, part wisdom, mm -hmm. and um, being able to to de determine which parts are there for a purpose and a lesson to teach in a way which will last for generations, as it has for you know over two thousand years, um, is a method of teaching which breaks things into meaningful story form um, that uh, allow us to uh, fully engage in the concept. So this is exactly what it says. And I do believe it means that at some point there will be an accounting, as I said earlier, that the, um, the value of having self-worth is what you do, what you do matters. If what you do doesn't matter, then do you really matter? And if there's no mm -hmm. consequence to that, then how, how important was your life? Right. What a great lesson that you matter as to know that you'll be held accountable for your actions. Because when we are coming into this world, we have a unique gift and a unique mission that we, you, I, can only do in this world. And if we don't do that, then the world is lacking. And so we're accountable for not living into our greatest magnificence. We're accountable for not using the gifts that the universe and God put into our lives for uncovering the relationships and how those are there for us to help each other and help others as well. So I think these questions and each one of these has a context in that journey. So I love that the first question is, did you deal honestly in business? Now you would think as a spiritual being, having a human experience, business is a byproduct of survival, right? If we didn't have to work, if we were born with this, you know, this, uh, this trust fund of sorts that yeah. we didn't have to work ever. So that'd be wonderful. We should go into a mountaintop and we should pray and we should be involved in spiritual pursuit and never go to work. Work yeah. seems like a necessary evil, right? Like we just got to do it. But because that's the very first question asked, what the sages are telling us is that what you do every day, what you do every minute of every day, when you're in the world, when you're making a living, you're actually making a life. And how you conduct yourself when you're doing business or when you're doing things that aren't overtly spiritual is the greatest testament to your spiritual attainment. So we're, we're first asked about, were we honest in business? Did we take our values? And did the values become part of our very essence, our life, everything we did? That's a big question. It mm -hmm. wasn't just, did I not steal? Did I not lie? That wasn't the question. It was, were you honest in business? Honesty is emmet. That is truth. There is no room for facade, duplicity, BS. Were you your full magnificence in that as well? Which I think is amazing. And then the rest of those seven kind of follow that same concept and ideal, whether that was the uh, spiritual pursuit, hoping a better tomorrow, creating. Creating is really our greatest godly um, faculty. It's not our intellect. Intellect is great, but God creates, we create. Imagination, vision, seeing that which we didn't have any way to reach before, coming up with an idea and an innovation and a novelty that helps the world and creates something that wasn't there. That's not just procreation, that's creation. And that is a deeply, deeply godly thing that comes from our soul. Did we learn from that? Did we have wisdom? And did all of that bring us to a place where we are truly true to ourselves, where we are one with all aspects of ourselves? And if we are able to take that journey and we know what the end game is, and the reason we know what sort of we're accountable for in heaven 
So now we can really start to live our lives with clarity and purpose about what are the things that matter most to us. That's deep and rich and um, worthy of putting on repeat. Thank you. <laughs> Judaism re- reconcile this concept or idea of free will with God's divine plan or destiny or one's destiny. That is the greatest question of all. Oh, good. Yes. And it is a question that there is no intellectual answer that could ever truly satisfy that. And the reason is that we know that we define our human experience with the physics of our world, which are time and space. Things have to happen now or later. It can't happen at both times. They have to happen here or there. And so in a time or space continuum, there is a reality that you can't have foreknowledge and have free will. There has to be something that gives. But that's our perspective. And from a God perspective, that's above or before time and space. There's a different kind of an understanding that can afford for free will that also um, has a divine and a plan and an understanding. Now, those are wonderful words, but intellectually, that's really hard for us to conceptualize because we're stuck in this time-space continuum. The example the Talmud gives is it's trying to, uh, trying to conceptualize a needle that has a small eye, right, a little hole in the top. You have an elephant that's just huge, and the elephant passes through the eye of the needle. Now, we can imagine the elephant shrinking down or getting really small in the middle and going through, but we can't see this huge object going through this small opening. It can't happen. Physics doesn't allow it. Anything physics doesn't allow, our mind is incapable of grasping. Yeah. And so that's one of those things as well. But I will say, the question is, what do we really have free choice about? And since you're a fan of the Talmud, the Talmud tells us, and I'll use a little Hebrew, it says, which means everything is in the hands of God other than our moral character. And the Tosvot, which were the commentaries written thousands of years ago, go into a very beautiful explanation. And they explain that whether you were born healthy or sick, poor or wealthy, privilege or poverty, whether you were given opportunities in life or had opportunities taken away, whether you had parents who were loving, kind people, or not, whether your experience was with a minister, a rabbi, a priest, an imam, who was someone that showed the best of spirituality, or was a person that was weak and flawed and showed you the worst of spirituality, you have no choice in any of those things. And think about it. Who are your friends? Who do you have around you growing up? We don't choose those things at all. We don't make any choices until we're well into our teens. For guys, maybe it's until they're in their 30s. I don't know. And what happens is we have uh, not the psychic determinism, but we have this destiny where who we become in many ways is uh, very deeply influenced by environment and by nurture. There's only one thing we really get to choose, really. And that is what do I do with that? What's my character? What do I choose? Where's my compass? What are, my, what are my true norths? What are my values? Mm-hmm. And if you go back to the list that you had given, every single one of those comes down to choices that are based on my character, my values, what I can choose. And that's what free choice really is about. It's not about what car I buy. It's not about which house I'm in. It's not about the billions of decisions that we make throughout our lifetime. It's about how do I connect with another human being? How do I put my agenda on hold? How do I see what's really in front of me? How do I choose love over hate? How do I choose not to be jealous? How do I choose to live into my magnificence? Because having self-love and having the recognition that our creator gave us these gifts for a reason, and they're there to be amplified, never to make ourselves small. We don't believe in making ourselves small. We don't believe in being egotistical. But you say it's not about me, but it's up to me. And then you can change the world around you. So I think that's sort of where free choice comes into it. But ultimately, 
there is a destiny and how those two come together. We won't understand until there's a little life after our birth or that we go on to the next one. Then all of a sudden we'll have the perspicacity and the ability to see what we couldn't see in this limited time on the earth. Hmm. If you were to go today, would you feel that your life was complete? Um, I would answer for sure. Yes. Okay. How, how do you know that? I think um, there are certain things that I still want to experience, obviously, places I would want, I would want to see. Uh, I would want to ha have more opportunities to express myself in different creative ways because that just gets me going. You know, that turns me on the most. Um, but we're very blessed that we built a beautiful community around us. We know the influence that we've already had. We're, at least I feel confident in knowing that I impacted a lot of people in a positive way. I know there are people who got married because of me, built families because I said, hey, you should meet this person. Um, there are people who were sick that got better because I helped them through that. There are, I just know that I, I lived my life so far with a lot of intention and that there are a lot of people that benefited from that consciousness and that intention. So I feel like if today, God forbid, was my last day, I think I'd be okay. I'd be like, I, I'm living the way I want to live. Are there things I still need to correct, would like to correct, make better? Yes. Would I like more time to do that? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Um, still, um, if you wake up in the morning, knowing that you're a trying your best, even if you're not getting it right. And I'm not talking about perfection because there's no perfection. It's impossible to be perfect. I'm far from perfect. But if you're striving for meaning and purpose and connection, then you are living your best life. Um, if you're striving for correction and reinvention and creativity, then you are living your best life. If you're striving for, as you said in the podcast, changing your curriculum and reinventing the way that your narrative maybe was built in ways that you had no choice, as Robbie highlighted, and you're seeking ways to reinvent your life with more conviction and purpose and consciousness, then you can say you've lived your best life. And if you're not doing any of those things, then it's going to be pretty scary to wake up in the morning and imagine that might be your last day. Yeah. Rabbi, I think I'd love to end on this question with you. What would you say to people listening that really are in that sort of dark night of the soul, in that in-between state, that in that bardo where they don't, um, they're having a hard time accessing the value of their life, the purpose of their life, the um, desire to get up and see the sunshine. What would you offer to them? Dear listener, I will start by saying, that's okay. And that you can embrace that moment and just recognize that it's okay to feel that way. One thing that I find humorous is that often, many, many times a year, people will come up to me and say, you're so lucky. I go, thank you. Why? You're so lucky because you have faith. Your life must be so much better it must be so easy to go through the days when you have, you found faith. And I always chuckle to myself and I let them know, my friend, um, nobody has faith. We strive for faith. Mm -hmm. We have moments as a rabbi for 28 years. I have moments of clarity where I'm like, yes, I have faith. And there are so many mornings that I wake up just like you, dear listener, 
And I say to myself, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't have, I've, I can't find my faith. Where did I put it? I have it, but I, I misplaced it. It's got to be here. I remember what it looks like. I remember what it feels like, but it's, it's, not, it's not here right now. That's why it's called practicing faith. Ah, that's why it's called practicing faith. Because we have faith. to practice it every single day. Yeah. And so to that point. Stop where it bring water, right? Yeah, absolutely so. And so to that point, when you have um, a moment where you can't find faith, or maybe you haven't had it in a long time, you can't find it. The first step is just to be, to breathe and say, that's okay. Um, we're in this moment. We're in the human experience. We have a lot of pressures, a lot of challenges. We have a lot of pains we carry from childhood and onward. And there are moments where we're just going to be in an opaque moment and we're not going to see that faith. But what I'd like to frame and leave you on from my perspective is the words of the great sage Morgan Freeman in one of my favorite movies that uh, is called Evan Almighty which is this story, a modern-day Noah story that I watched with my kids years and years ago. And it's this story about, you know, um, what's his name, Corral? Steve Corral. Steve Corral. He's a congressman. He becomes a modern-day Noah, and you have uh, Morgan Freeman as God. And there's this scene in the diner, and, you know, uh, Steve Corral's wife is leaving him. She no longer feels like he's sane, and how could he be Noah? And he's building this ark, and she's in there. And then Morgan Freeman appears to her as the waiter. And you look sad, what's going on? She goes, that guy on TV, that's my husband, he's crazy, and our marriage is falling apart, and I don't know what to do. And here's what he says, and I think this is meaningful, and I think about this actually often. And he says, you know, you have to be careful what you ask God universe for. He said that when you ask for courage, God can't give you courage. But you know what he gives you? Looks a heck of a lot like a very scary situation yes. because then you have the opportunity to find courage. And when you ask for character, God can't give you character, but what God can give you is a challenge that's going to test your moral fabric so that you can develop character. God can't give you faith. God can give you a crisis. Mm-hmm. And through that crisis, you can find gate, right? They're all opportunities. So I would say that in the moment you're in, embrace it, accept it, know that it is okay, and that you're whole, you're wholehearted, you're complete. And then allow yourself to ask yourself, how maybe is this moment of obscurity, of difficulty, of darkness, something that allows me to dig deeper, joy in my world is a verb, it's not a state. How can I go out there and be joy? How can I smile to somebody else, say hello to somebody else, do something that's gonna be an act of kindness in this world and do something outside of your own experience? And suddenly, if we do that, I think the collateral beauty that's in the world, no matter what the pain is, start to open itself up to us and we start to see the opportunity in all of those things. So that would be my final thought on how to find what Chava so eloquently talks about in her book, as she does in the beginning, as that um, fractured light uh, from the window. And sometimes it's just stepping back far enough to get the right perspective and also embracing and accepting that it's okay not to have that clarity in the moment. A big part of healing, if you're in that dark place, dear listener, is to find people that can see your best self, to search them out, really search them out. And um, because sometimes you can't see it for yourself and you need someone else to point it out for you. And that's basically, you know, the gift that I got when I worked with my performance coach, coach Amon Sood. He really helped me see my gift, see my magnificence. I had lost it. It's like the light was just so dim. And I just couldn't see it. I just was lost in my own grief. And my emotions were just so raw from my loss of innocence and the sadness that I carried. I, I couldn't access myself anymore. I was only accessing like the garment that I had put on, which was the garment of grief. Right. I think of someone I work with who she said to me a couple of weeks ago in session, you know, I don't have any friends. 
I don't have any friends. And I said, that's okay. Maybe you're not meant to have friends right now because the friends you choose right now will be really crappy friends. They'd be, they'd be reflective of how you're being a friend to yourself, which is a not a really good friend. Being just with you and the God of your understanding or you and your compassionate heart, which might be an aspect of the God of your understanding, is the greatest friendship that you can cultivate. And from that, you will be building the floorboards of your new home that you can take residence in, which is going to be positioned to the sunshine, not the uh, the shadows and the, the forest of your own misery. That sounds very poetic. I don't know where that came from, but... Uh... Write that down. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But yeah. Well, guys, this has been so rich and delicious and fully geekified, as my podcast's title suggests. And I feel I've learned so much from both of you and so grateful for this time together. All your information is going to be in the show notes. And I just... Uh, I just would love to, uh, I think I, I might have to crash one of your Shabbat dinners one of these days. I think that's going to definitely have to happen. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.